everyone, and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we turn our all-seeing eye to the world of comic book adaptations and try to sort the super from the substandard. Who's we? Well, I'm your host, Andrew, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Mick. Hello! And as is increasingly becoming usual, Graham's here as well. Hello there. So the last, the last three I've been on, then, have been The Killer the Shadow and Ghost World. The titles make those sound like very similar films. Yes. They do indeed, and I suppose yes. The Killer and The Shadow aren't dissimilar. They're, they're pretty dissimilar. They're not as different mm. as The Killer and Ghost World. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah, Ghost World is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in what, this. What, what, what we could call... What we could call this little subset of uh, Behold episodes of The Killer, The Shadow, and Ghost World is we could call them the Cause and Effect Trilogy. Oh. Well, a killer. And a ghost world. Yeah. And a sort of strange shadow in between. Yeah, yeah, that, that works. Yeah. Also, many killers have shadows and other great length. They do. And often operate within them. Mm. See, and to think some people say that we don't put any thought into what (laughs) things we do for each episode. Absolutely. (laughs) So, yes. Our our listeners can't understand our plan because it's ineffable. It cannot be effed. It cannot. Well, it can. It can be effed. Okay, I cannot be effed. Let's get on with it. Speaking of being effed by things, I should also mention, just in case it's showing up on the recording, because we are all seasoned podcast professionals, we have decided to record on firework night. (laughs) (laughs) Because what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Anyway, yes, this week we are talking about The Killer, the 2023 film directed by David Fincher, written by Andrew Kevin Walker, writer of Seven <laughs> and based on the comic created by Alexis Noland, who wrote under the pen name Mats, and Luke Shakamon. And I mean, I assume, like me, you're both huge, massive fans of the comic book The Killer. Yes, it definitely what, what, oh. isn't the case that you just went to see this film, saw the opening credits and thought, oh shit, I can get a podcast out of this. <laughs> yes, we're suddenly struck by the realisation of, what am I doing pretending like I have hobbies? <laughs> no, it's all content. It all has to be content. <laughs> yes, welcome to my world whenever I watch a film and realise there's a pop star in it. <laughs> Is yeah, weirdly going into this, I had it in my head that this was a remake of like some foreign language film, not John Woo's The Killer. I want to, I realized that was a separate film, but I was so convinced that this was a remake of something else. It has that vibe, doesn't it? It feels mm. like it could have been like very early Luc Besson alongside La Femme Nikita. It feels like it could perhaps have been something Jean Pierre Melville did around the time of La Samurai. But it is not, which is good, because we wouldn't be able to do an episode on it if it was. Indeed, so to take that mess on, yeah. we finally got him after all these years. <laughs> Surprised Mick hasn't been quicker with revenge, given what he did to uh, Valerian and Laureline. I think I took my revenge in the episode of... Um, what was then four panel where we talked about the film fair of course that was actually a separate podcast so in theory we could do it again we could <laughs> but you know before we started recording we were talking about Terminator Dark Fate where I said that the best the best part of the movie wasn't in the trailer it was in the poster mm. it comes to something when you're talking about a comic strip adaptation and the best performance in it comes from Rihanna Yes, Rihanna as Futurama's horrible gelatinous blob, a genuinely hilarious piece of casting. Yes. 
that was the one really good fun thing about the film. Yeah. Anyway, we've spent a bit of time talking about something at least. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I guess we're just going straight into the synopsis because I I have no deep insights on the comic book The Killer. No. Same. So, uh, synopsis time. Full spoilers for the film ahead, which I mean, for once, is actually quite relevant because it is basically we're technically doing this episode before it's even out officially. That's yes. how good we are. Because yeah, it's been a whole weird thing where it's like. It's a Netflix film, but it's had like a limited cinema release. Yeah, and you can tell that it's a Netflix film on cinema release because there has been no promotion for its cinema release whatsoever. That's yep. a giveaway. Literally not a thing. Yeah. So, uh, an unnamed assassin who, for convenience from now on, I'll just refer to as the actor Michael Fassbender, <laughs> waits in a Parisian WeWork office for his target. As he waits, the actor Michael Fassbender narrates about how his patience and lack of empathy make him so good at his job. However, when the time comes to take the shot, he misses. We should point out that the unknown assassin that is now the actor Michael Fassbender is not the same unknown assassin that he was in the Assassin's Creed movie. I don't think anyone was thinking about Assassin's Creed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are you sure he isn't? Because to know that, you would have had to watch the Assassin's Creed movie. And has anyone? It's I by did, Justin Curzel, the director of Snowtown. Such a weird choice. I did watch it. Okay. Well, all uh, now, now you've detailed all of the interesting bits of it, I guess we can move yeah. on. Yeah. I mention it merely because it's got assassins and Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a connection I would have made if I was at all capable of remembering the film Assassin's Creed. <laughs> <laughs> and I say this as someone who has played most of the games... Anyway. anyway, anyway, the actor Michael Fassbender flees Paris and returns home to his returns to his home in the Dominican Republic, only to find that his girlfriend Magdala, played by Sophie Charlotte, has been attacked by assassins hired by Fassbender's agent Hodges, played by Charles Parnell, who's trying to tie up loose ends for the client of the botched hit. The actor Michael Fassbender interrogates and executes a taxi driver, who drove the assassins to his house before travelling to New Orleans to confront Hodges. The actor Michael Fassbender shoots Hodges through the heart with a nail gun and then gets the names and addresses of the two assassins and the client from Hodges' secretary, whose neck he then snaps. Tracking down the two assassins, the actor Michael Fassbender kills Sauron, the Dark Lord of Mordor and forger of the One Ring, and burns down his house. Then he shoots multiple award-winning actor Tilda Swinton in the face. <laughs> After that, the actor Michael Fassbender travels to Chicago and breaks into the apartment of Claiborne, played by Arliss Howard, the man who ordered the hit. So, whilst being held at gunpoint, it becomes clear that Claiborne has no real idea about what was going on, and so the actor Michael Fassbender decides to spare Claiborne from his bloodthirsty vengeance. The actor Michael Fassbender then returns to Magdala, but is left shaken by the knowledge that his cold and personal demeanour has been shattered. Ish. The end. Yeah, ish. His eye does a bit of a twitch at the end, so that <laughs> So, really, this is one of those films where it, it, it sort of hinges on a paradox. You know, the fascination of the character played by the actor Michael Fassbender is that he is, you know, suave, handsome, obviously, likable enough, seems like an ordinary person. You'd tip your hat to him if you saw him walk down the street, and yet he is also a really big Smiths fan. Yes. Yep. The, the biggest of all his crimes. <laughs> I was waiting for uh, Mick to find out about the Smiths needle drops in the film. I was aware of them going in because I, I had... I think I'd heard Fincher mention them in an interview and I thought, 
wait, what? Okay, right. Um, and yeah, it's, it's his film about an assassin who cannot stop listening to the hits of the Smiths. I think, I think over the course of the last couple of years of podcasting, particularly with yourself, Graham, mm-hmm. I've covered a couple of Smiths-related films. True. And there are more Smiths needle drops in this than the two of those <laughs> put together. <laughs> yes. I don't, do, does this actually qualify as an episode of Pop Screen? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I am very adamant that we don't cover films that just have like a lot of pop songs on the soundtrack, but this is pushing it, man. This is really <laughs> pushing it. <laughs> It is so weirdly invested in one band. It is. You know, you could you could understand that if they're trying to set a mood and having a certain type of sort of glum rock from the 80s. Mm. But it's very, 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 very Mozart-centric. Yeah. Yeah. And I can kind of see if it's trying to say something, like obviously with the actor Michael Fassbender being this very... He's all about, you know, efficiency and just doing the job. So he's the kind of guy who just goes, right, this is the band I like. This is the music I'm going to listen to. And yeah. that's it. But it's still, it's because it's literally oh. every scene has at least like one or two Smith songs in it. Oh, yeah. thinking back a, a while, was it David Cameron that Johnny Marr barred from listening to the Smiths? It was. Maybe it's a political ag- allegory saying, an assassin is as cold-hearted as David Cameron. Yes. I did wonder why there was that bit in the middle of the film where he had sex with a pig. <laughs> no, <it was. laughs> That's the positive bit of Cameron's legacy, isn't it? That bit where he brought the nation together to say, oh my God, what did Charlie Brooker know about this? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, of all the surprisingly prescient bits of media, that one episode of Black Mirror has to be at the top. I mean, it's not even the episode of Black Mirror we thought was going to be prescient. They sweated blood trying to think of horribly plausible things that mobile phones could do. And the one that came true turned out to be the really goofy one. (laughs) That's just life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. the actor Michael Fassbender. Yes. I, I'll be honest, um, after about 20 minutes, I thought someone had bought me the audio book of Atomic Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of voiceover, and uh, I did find it a slight problem that quite a lot of the voiceover appears to have been drawn from a Twitter account with like a crusader in the user pick. And yeah. it's called Alpha Grind Set Sigma Memes or something like that. <laughs> oh no, he is, isn't he? <laughs> he is that guy, I'm sorry. He just goes around going on about trust no one. This is what it takes. This is what you have to do to achieve, to feel the burn. Andrew Tate was framed. Yeah, there, I thought that was an odd choice of voiceover as well. Yeah. So it's a shame that the, the killer died like two minutes after the end of this film when he snorted bleach trying to fight COVID. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite funny because Finch has been doing the promo rounds and he's been talking a lot about how weary he is about right-wingers appropriating the voiceover from Fight Club. Yeah. Like, I, hate, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> But this is not going to help the situation. No. no. Yeah, and I think we should point out that I feel like the end, the whole point, of the end of this film is that that narration is completely wrong. Like it's self-delusional bullshit. Mm. But it is. That's yeah. not going to stop anyone. Is it? And, that's, and, and that's the danger with that kind of thing. If you if you're putting that kind of thing in there, and that is the realization that it's it's that self-delusional bullshit. That's the point that the kind of people who will adopt it as a mantra will not notice or choose to ignore. 
yeah, I mean, Fight Club is absolutely clear-sighted about how self-deluding Tyler Durden's philosophy is. Yeah. And that never stopped anyone. No. Yeah. But I think possibly the big problem that Fincher has with stuff like this is he just makes it all look so damn cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Absolutely. sometimes it can be hard to go, yeah, you know what, maybe this whole I-don't-need-anyone-or-anything mindset is, you know, wrong. But then when you watch Michael Fassbender just, like, suplex a big musty guy over a table and then shoot him in the face and then Molotov cocktail down his house. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, that is quite sick, though. Actually, one thing I one thing I liked about this film, which which struck me as um, artistic development on the part of David Fincher. Do you remember in the in the early days of David Fincher films, people used to criticize him for for them being too dark and you couldn't see what was going on. Yeah, yeah. The very opening shot of this has a pan of some lights, <laughs> and ironically, they're switched off. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of LED workman's lights as you pan across to um, an, an almost uh, Wes Anderson type framing of Fassbender in the window of the, yes, the yeah. hotel. Fassbender's interesting as a, as, a, as a choice for this character. And I must say, I like him as an actor. I'm not entirely sure that he works in this because I think Fincher's understanding of Star Persona is normally that people secretly want them to be pushed a bit further than they normally get. Yeah. The classic example of this is the game where he's cast Michael Douglas as this sort of in control, slick, yuppie who like dates beautiful women and eats out at the fanciest restaurants. And this is the role that Michael Douglas played all the time in the 1990s. But Fincher also understands that you want to see that guy go through hell. And I think this is why when David Fincher casts more divisive stars like Ben Affleck or Jared Leto, those films tend to work for people who don't like those actors. This is Fassbender doing something that is very, very much in his comfort zone. It is basically the pulp version of like the, some of the work he did with Stephen Queen, where it's very internal, it's very cool, it's sort of quite distant, but there's still a sort of twinkle to it. It works very well in the double bill with shame, I would it say. Al it also reminded me a lot of his performance as the um, simulant in Prometheus. Yes, yes. But without the Peter O'Toole impressions. W without that and without the bit where he uh, gives an, a clone of himself a flute and makes unfortunate references to blowing and fingering. I, you know, the, the further we get away from it, the more I like the Alien franchise's late swerve into slapstick comedy. <laughs> I still like Prometheus. I know I'm the only person on the planet apart from possibly Ridley Scott. <laughs> I mean, I think it is very funny that Charlie's the one gets crushed to death by an incredibly thin spaceship. <laughs> Which again, it's it's slapstick comedy. Yes. Oh, all the scientists who are like, well, I know the best way to investigate this alien egg. It's face first. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think as a performance, uh, as Fastbender's performance in this film goes, I don't think it's bad. I think it is almost too in his wheelhouse and it lacks yeah. that tang of subversion that Fincher normally brings to Star yeah, Persona. It, 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 he feels right in the part, doesn't he? And But in a way that... Well, I'm, I'm, given, given the voiceover, he probably did film it. <laughs> <laughs> film it in. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, It's one of those films where I, I kind of like it and I'd probably watch it again. Mm. But it doesn't seem to do anything. It doesn't seem to stretch anybody. It doesn't yeah, stretch yeah. the cast. It doesn't stretch the director. And it doesn't stretch the audience. Yeah, it's very much like, like an old comfy pair of shoes, isn't it? Yeah. 
and I think we are probably, I mean, tell me if I'm misreading anyone, we are probably on a fairly wide spectrum of how we respond to it. Because I think, Andrew, you really liked this, didn't you? I, you know, it's, it's, it's again, really like it is kind of hard to say. I, I had a fun time watching it. Yeah, yeah. But it's also, I think the thing for me is I would say I enjoyed it. I probably wouldn't say it's the best film I've ever seen. And it's also not Finch's best. But this is also a man who made Zodiac. So yeah, of course, it's not going to be like any film. It's not that is not going to be his best. But that's still going to be better than like 90% of what other directors can do. Well, uh, this is it. You know, I, I enjoyed the film. Hmm. I'm not going to go evangelise about it to all my friends. But if any of them turn around and say, have you seen The Killer? Is it any good? I'll say, it's worth a watch. I have to admit, I felt very bored by it, and I was not expecting that. And I think I, I felt quite bored by Mank as well, and it's possible that working with Netflix has just severed Finch's connection with the audience. Like yeah. maybe out of all of the brand name American directors you've got now, outside of people like you know, obviously outside of someone like Michael Bay, but outside of the sort of auteur in the auteurs, Fincher seems to be the one who most thrives on that connection with mm. the audience, and I can understand how it must be quite hard to make movies that have the audience in the palm of your hand when you don't know where that audience is or how big that audience is. But I think, but I... I, think the, I think the flip side of that, though, Graham, is that I think Fincher possibly understands that Netflix audience because that, that separation of the plot into the different chapters, mm. he knows that people streaming that on Netflix are going to pause it, go off and get a cup of tea, yeah, or fill up the snack tray... Maybe, that's it. Maybe, maybe the problem is just that I am not the Netflix audience. Maybe if you watch um, this as a breather in between like the next couple of nine hour long episodes of Stranger Things, maybe it works a lot better. Yeah. And, and I think that's it. You know, like you, I'm not part of the streaming audience. I'm, you know, yes, I watch films on TV. I'm, there, there are several things about this modern media landscape that get my goat. The fact that we pander to this entire sort of binge watch generation, you're missing an emotional connection by not having a cliffhanger for the next episode. That whole, I need to know what happens, but you're keeping me waiting for seven days, used to be an important part and a visceral part of the viewing process. And why don't they bring the original radioactive man back? Kids will want to see that. <laughs> but the other, why, why, why is BBC Sounds filled with podcasts? When, when yeah, fifteen God, years podcasts. ago they were called they're, they're radio shows. That's wrong with the world nowadays. These, these right. damn podcast things. <laughs> yeah. We do a podcast, right? We are mm. not on the radio. We are not on the airwaves. We don't have a license to broadcast on the airwaves. So this That's is true. a podcast. Yeah. BBC Radio 4 have got a license. Yeah, <laughs> once you transfer like, the world at one from Radio 4 to BBC Sounds, apparently it becomes the world at one podcast, which yeah. is hilarious. <laughs> and now... The Shipping Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think by doing that that whole chapter thing, I think that is Fincher translating what he would normally do in the cinema and engaging with the audience. Mm. That's him engaging with the Netflix audience. Right, lads, we're switching location now. Off you pop. (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. Get your beer and snacks. Yeah, maybe maybe that is the future of just directors trying to say, you know what, fine, I will meet you halfway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to pause and go to the loo, here's a point you can do it. But then you're going to come back, 
and you're gonna watch me like craft all these elaborate scenes of Michael Fassbender just driving to a place. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not gonna make a three and a half hour film with no break in it. And, so that you just have to die if your bladder explodes, Marty. And, and that was the what other do thing. I, I have a bad back, Marty. I can't <laughs> sit for that long. <laughs> You would think that a man who recently celebrated his 80th birthday would be more alert to the value of the piss break than anyone else. <laughs> but the, um... I mean, I assume the problem is just Martin Scorsese goes into every screening with an empty bladder, having first relieved himself all over just a massive stack of Marvel DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> felt like a a proper 60s James Bond light espionage thriller type mm. thing and then some of it not so much and it yeah i feel if it was like a step or to win in either direction it would work better if fincher wants to make an absolutely paired back sort of extremely slow anti-crime thriller in the manner of Antonioni's The Passenger. First of all, Netflix are probably mad enough to pay for that at this stage yeah. in their history. Uh, and secondly, I'd be up for it. And also, if Fincher wanted to make something really sort of fun and action-packed about a contract killer, I could also go for that. But yeah. this is sort of trying to do both in a really awkward yeah, it, way. It, it, it seems to swing between that kind of action movie and something entitled The Loneliness of the Long Distance Hitman. <laughs> yeah, which I'd, I'll step in and defend that bit, I think, because I feel like that's kind of playing into the whole idea of being a hitman is all about having these long stretches of essentially tedium punctuated by like very sharp moments of explosive violence. So like for me, that works, because that's just like that's what his life is like it is you get the big scary fight scene but then also you need to spend like several hours cleaning up and kind of wiping everything down making sure that you know all the ids are cleared away you've changed all your license plates but but i think there's a reason why all those bits have been missed out of hitman movies in the past <laughs> I mean, clearly you don't watch enough Hitman movies directed by Jim Jarmusch, which make this look like, you know, the, well, it makes this look like John Woo's the killer. Um, but yeah, I see what you're saying. I think one of the common denominators of when I've read the reviews and the opinions of people who liked it more than I did is that they found it a more effective deconstruction of its hero than I did. I think if you can get behind the idea that Fincher is critiquing his hero, it works a lot better. I, uh, well, I mean, for what there are obviously ironic moments, it still ends basically co-signing the idea that this guy is just really good at killing people and getting away with it. Which yeah. thing is that's the one thing in his life that he ever talks about. You know, I, I think that leaves his self-image pretty much intact. Yeah. Um, yeah, was well, I would more argue well, that the point uh, at the end of the film is that he doesn't have that self-image anymore. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Because he knows he's let slip on some of his core um, beliefs and behaviours. In that he has not done the killings. Yeah. Oh well, I... well, he did do a killings. He just did the wrong killings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. Too, as well. The, the 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 problem for me was that all the tension was lost from that. Now I I didn't read anything about the plot beyond 
uh, Michael Fassbender uh, plays an assassin who, after her hit, goes horribly wrong. The problem is that scene. I immediately, the minute you saw the the woman, I knew what was going to happen. I knew how the the assassination was going to be botched. Mm. And it, it, it kind of like, well, this is obvious. I mean, the, the only way it could have been, sub- my expectation of the end of that scene could have been subverted is if, like, you know, his two six-year-old sons had run into the room or something. But it was that kind of a sort of, this is like, you might as well have signposted this. I suppose I, I, can, I can always see the sort of shell of something I would have enjoyed more in this movie. And I think I can imagine a version of the killer where the fact that that outcome is obvious to everyone other than the person who you know is going on and on to himself about what a perfect assassination machine he is, is a, a sort of satirical point that the audience get. I think it probably is the point of the scene in Finch's head, but I don't think it's. Yes. I don't think it comes across. Yeah. Because, you know, there's there's too much attention to detail for him to make a an error like that. Mm. All the checking of his pulse on his smartwatch and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. He's doing that all the way through in the build up. You'd think that someone that careful about those levels of details would have a, a sort of contingency in case there's a sudden movement somewhere. I suppose he is quite a good self-portrait of Fincher, really, in that uh, you imagine that if someone got shot on a David Fincher set, his first reaction would be, right, mop it up and we'll do it exactly the same again until we get it right. <laughs> But he is kind of detail-oriented, and there are some, like, the, the things I enjoyed most in this film were often the tiniest detail, the fact, which Andrew has mentioned in his synopsis, that the hideout where he knows no one is ever going to bother him is a wee work office. is absolutely yeah. hilarious, I yes. think. <laughs> and, and the fact that no one will bother him there is getting truer by the day. Yes! <laughs> oh! <laughs> It's also th- no, that no does... one ever notices the German tourist. Well, mm. au contraire, <laughs> we spotted him. We spotted one in Amsterdam, <laughs> and we watched him for an entire rainy morning, facing up and down. <laughs> was he, in fact, Michael Fassbender waiting on another hit? No, he was far bolder. <laughs> and pacing up and down outside a, a house of ill repute. Ah. Or, as, or as they call them in Amsterdam, a house. <laughs> a house of normal repute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it, yeah. It, I, th- I think this is the problem with it. it. It's not an unenjoyable film. It just isn't enjoyable. If you see what I mean, you're not you're not going to go out and say to your mates, "You must watch this movie," unless your mates happen to be doing a podcast on it on Sunday night with you. Yeah, maybe fair. Yeah, but I mean, look, if I can go see a film and it's a nice time, I'm happy. <laughs> and it just coincidentally has in the credits. Based on a comic book. <laughs> yeah, maybe my sort of well meter was set too high because earlier that week I had seen Killers of the Flower Moon and it's really great. Um, but I understand why this may be the superior entertainment option for people who do not have a commode installed in their local cinema. Do you mean, is that a commode, C-O, 
double M O D E not or Mark. K E R. There must be somewhere where Mark Kermode is basically installed. Just in installed. <laughs> and this is our backup commode. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, anyway, I, I just think and, 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 even a less good David Fincher movie, he's, he's still just got a bit of the sauce. I just, I just feel that with the casting you've got, I mean, the, the, you know, just the calm acceptance from Tilda Swinton mm. of how things are going to pan out in that scene is 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 beautiful within it. But with with casting like that, um, Charles Parnell as as Hodges, that there's a there's an almost Samuel L. Jackson coolness to to the way he receives his visitor. He's really good, Parnell. Yeah. I think that would be my in fact my in, particular cast. In fact, initially, when mm. I heard the telephone conversation, I thought it was Samuel L. Ah, on the phone. Inviting um, the actor Michael Fassbender into the Avengers Initiative. <laughs> there are things going on that you don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows about. Um, fair, Michael Fassbender is Magneto, so it does work. Yeah. yeah. Well, it does now. <laughs> yeah. Which actually, that's 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 going to be my big complaint about the film. Why does Michael Fassbender not just simply like? Throw the boss at the man using his mind. Why did Michael Fassbender not build a snowman uh, after each one of his killings in the way that uh, happens in another great Michael Fassbender film we all love? Built a snowman that was then dressed like a German tourist. (laughs) (laughs) I want that scooter, though. I didn't notice the scooter. I'm not. Oh, the, the nifty little. Switched on with his mobile phone. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. That was a cool no. scooter. Okay. And uh, there, there were sort of like little. I, I felt like he was throwing in little homages to other films. Mm, which he probably was. Because because that scooter ride where he's escaping the the police feels very Italian jobby. Where he's going yeah. down little alleys with stairs and stuff like that. I was just going to say, you can tell which one of us is the old mod on this podcast, can't you? The one who yeah. notices a scooter instinctively in every film he sees. <laughs> also, this film had a score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, so I was happy. No, it and didn't. Then... It had a score by uh, Stephen Patrick Morrissey and Jimmy Moore, <laughs> and you know it. It had a very Trent Reznor and Atticus Rossi score too, didn't it? After years of them doing scores for films where you get to the end credits and go, wait a minute, that was Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross? <laughs> yeah, none of that nonsense. Back to proper Nine Inch Nails. Every scene has like weird ambient noises in the background. Like... Yes. If it doesn't sound like a dentist's drill, but a dentist's drill that is also weirdly sexy, it's not a proper Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross soundtrack. <laughs> That's much more like it. Definitely. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's an odd thing, this. And I, I did, I can't sugarcoat my feelings. I did feel really, really disappointed with it. But it's also one of those things where a director you love makes a film that really disappoints you and part of you thinks, yeah, that figures. You know, Fincher was always going to make something like this. It is very, as we've said, within his and Andrew Kevin Walker's wheelhouse. And I think maybe part of my issue with it is that every other David Fincher film, even the ones that haven't quite clicked for me, He's been pushing himself. He's been trying something new. Even Panic Room, which was previously his most Fincher by numbers, does have that really badass shot where it goes through the handle of a coffin mug. I could have done with a coffin mug shot in the killer. 
But but then is there a, is there an element perhaps of this transition to this streaming media? Is it mm. at some point in his career, David Fincher had to earn the right to take risks creatively, yeah. right? So in order for movies to be made by studios who aren't, let's be honest, risk-averse. Yeah, totally. Um, he had to he had to make things that they would permit. Mm. And then as his, as his stock grew, they gave him a bit more free reign. Mm. Is he now back at the start of that cycle, perhaps? With, with Netflix? It's hard because, to say. Yeah. Because they don't really know what this landscape is going to be. No. No, in, in many ways they don't. And I mean, we've been talking about his films because, you know, I, I'm a moviegoer and for me and for anyone else who's sort of primary visual media cinema, Fincher is kind of an intermittent presence these days. But of course he's been over on Netflix, not just doing things like this and Mank, he's been in Mindhunter, the series about Terry Mindhunter. Yeah, but uh, all their minds. <laughs> he was involved with Love, Death and Robots as well, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He did uh, The Voir, or what, however you pronounce that, the series of visual essays that Netflix put out. So he's been stretching himself in other areas, I guess, and maybe he's sort of earned the right to just say, I want to do a David Fincher film that's just like a David Fincher film, you know? I'm not trying to tell the story of how Citizen Kane got made. I'm not trying to do an inexplicably long adaptation of an extremely short F. Scott Fitzgerald story. It's not about Facebook. I'm just going to do one of the ones about cool murderers that everyone associates with me. Well, yeah, I think that gets me of why I like it, because I just felt like it was David Fincher going, hey, this is some cool stuff. I'm just going to do some cool bits with it. Yeah. And then I went, yeah, David Fincher, that was some cool stuff. It kept reminding me, particularly once Swinton appears wearing a very similar wardrobe, it kept reminding me of Jim Jarmusch's The Limits of Control, another sort of very restrained, episodic, anti-hitman thriller kind of thing which I remember got stinking reviews when it came out, but I liked a lot, and I'm eager to revisit it now and see whether, A, what was I just drunk when I watched The Limits of Control, uh, but B, you know, what what is this much less acclaimed film doing that made it click with me more than... Um, yeah, it's probably just that there's Bill Murray in it, really, isn't there? That's probably just it. If the rich guy at the end of The Killer had been played by Bill Murray, I'd have given it five stars. <laughs> oh, that would have been... Because, yeah, the, I feel like the guy at the end should have been more of someone. Yeah, it felt like a bit of a letdown, didn't it? I think that's definitely part of what he's going for that you get to this spider at the centre of the web and it's not Blofeld it's just some stock market asshole who's got so many things running that he doesn't even know that he's wrecked this guy's life I like that, I get it Um, yeah, I I just didn't like the build up that much Sitting, nodding, or listening to the distant explosions. I think that's beautiful. Isn't it? Anyway, now that we've had a nice divisive discussion, shall we try and I feel like we're prisoners in one of the towers on the Disney castle. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was trying to think: is that is that right? Is that something I'm not familiar with? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All this time we thought they were just nice fireworks, but actually they're a form of psychological torture for prisoners. (laughs) Mickey Mouse has got one of Minnie's many lovers trapped in the tower, (laughs) and the fireworks are a form of sleep deprivation. Yeah, in the knowledge. cell next to some hospital workers who tried to paint a Mickey Mouse logo on the children's <laughs> wards. <laughs> so 
assuming all of these characters will be public domain and you can make that movie. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, shall we rank this on the big list? I'd be interested to see us try and come to a, a conclusion about this, yes. Yes, because you'll have it somewhere near the top. I Well, well see, this is the thing, because I feel like because of the stance Graham has taken, I've fallen into the more positive side. But again, this this like I keep saying, this is a film that I watched and thought, eh, that, yeah, that was pretty fun. But like I certainly wouldn't put it in probably not in the top ten. Yeah, similarly, I like I say I did not enjoy it ranked on the curve of David Fincher movies, but I'm not gonna put it like next to Howard the Duck or anything crazy <laughs> like that. Yeah. So just well, to remind Howard me, the Duck is, is a lot higher than he used to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, boy, we, we found some new bottoms for that barrel. Yeah. <laughs> we we we've lifted the barrel up and dug about three feet underneath it. And found Frank Miller's the spirit. Yes. So, anyway, just to actually remind people then, uh, currently top of the list is A History of Violence at number one, and bottom of the list is Spawn at number 60. And this, I mean, I think is definitely more like middle of the list. So what is bang in the middle? What have we got there? Uh... Which is number 30, because that's how numbers work. (laughs) (laughs) So at number 30, we've got X-Men. 31, we've got Blue Beetle. Uh, 32, we've got Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. Actually, reading that makes me realise that that maybe doesn't quite work, since it's not quite the bell curve we want. <laughs> I was gonna say it de- for me. For me, it definitely goes above Blue Beetle. But then, for me, so would Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. And for me, I haven't seen any of these films, so you've really got carte blanche here. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, maybe I, maybe shifting things up a bit to what I think is actually like the middle tier of the list. Uh, 24, we've got Shang-Chi. 25, we've got Iron Man. 26, we've got Blade. 27, we've got Watchmen. 28, we've got From Hell. 29, we've got The Old Guard. Uh, I'm the one who hasn't seen From Hell. Okay. But I'd be quite happy to put it I'd say it's more accomplished than The Old Guard, which was a similar Netflix... Was it Netflix or Amazon? One of the it, yeah, Netflix. yeah, it was a Netflix. So that's putting it in a similar sort of ballpark mm. of comic book adaptations on a streaming service. I also think in as much as the list is like now something where we look at it and think, oh god, why did we put that there, like every single episode? Uh, we should probably use it to break up those two Alan Moore adaptations, just because it seems a bit daft to have them right next to each other. Yeah. That's my considered verdict. Not, not that Alan Moore considers them adaptations of his work. <laughs> I think he would appreciate us breaking them up. He would just be very disappointed to find out that it's not being done with hammers. Yes. Yeah, I can see that because Watchmen, for its faults, is at least more ambitious. Yeah. Like it's Zack Snyder taking a big swing and at least like mostly hitting the ball. There is enough of the comic in there to recommend it, I would say. Yeah. Whereas from then, And then Zack's managed to disappoint ever since. Yeah, are we happy with that as a positioning? Yeah. yeah, I'm happy to put that in as our new number 28. Because I mean, Street also, number 28. as I think I've mentioned before, I'd have a really big soft spot for the original Blade. 
I was aware of this and I wasn't going to like challenge that. Uh, Andrew, don't you think that Blade would be better if Blade was like fourth on the cast list and it was <laughs> women delivering life lessons? <laughs> I mean, maybe under the visionary directorship of Kevin Feige. <laughs> Uh, we're never getting another Blade film, are we? <laughs> no, we're not. So, yeah, that turned out to be a surprisingly easy ranking. Yeah. yeah. And with that, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Indeed. So, if you want to listen to more, you can find all episodes on the feed or if you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. Graham, if people want to hunt you down methodically and efficiently with a cold, dispassionate demeanour, where can they do that? Uh, well, I understand for that sort of activity, the site formerly known as Twitter is the best choice. I'm still on there. There's the Graham W film, but I never update it. Um, I am on Instagram under the same title. Uh, I... I have a website, GrahamWilliamsonFilms.com, and I am also on the Sigma uh, social networking site, Letterboxd, where it's just where I tend to remember to post links to articles I've written, episodes of podcasts, including this one, and my own podcast, Pop Screen, etc., etc. So yeah, just search for Graham Williamson on Letterboxd. That's what I do. But again, the fact that it's called the Sigma social network does make it sound like it's gonna like go out with Michael Fassbender and have a meat only diet. <laughs> anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com and that's about it. So if you're a fan, we'd also really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcast app of choice or just recommended us to a friend. It's the best way for us to grow as a show and reach new listeners. So that's everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. I've been Mick. And I've been Graham. So long and thanks for listening.